I think the whole concept of right fit is overly used, and I think it begins to lose meaning, but there is a certain essence which is important. So. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Stephen Boyd, Dean of Enrollment Management and Student Life at Unification Theological Seminary. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. Very nice to be here. And thank you, Jessica, for uh, having me on. I really, really am pleased to be here. I became aware of your podcast, saw what you were doing, and I think it's really a great thing to share a different aspect of international education, different side of it. So I'm really happy to be here. We'll talk about that. Oh, that's awesome. It's exciting to have somebody on the podcast and be speaking to someone on the podcast who has been a listener. So it's kind of a new twist for us as well, isn't it, Girish? It is very much so. And thank you, Stephen. I'm really glad. I, I know we share a little background at the University of Kansas, but we won't get into that. I think listeners are getting tired of me talking about basketball all the time. Uh, but, you know, let's talk a little bit about, I know I've seen you around at conferences. I've seen your work, uh, but like the podcast was intended to get to know people. And let's start there. Could you walk us through your journey of where you started and how you ended up where you are today? Well, I mean, I, I, as I kind of alluded to just now, I really love international world, all aspects of it. For me, the work that we do in, in my area is international student recruitment, admissions work, uh, is really intercultural exchange. Really, it's all about that. It's getting to know different cultures people from different backgrounds, coming to understand, respect each other, and show the best of who you are and see the best in what they may represent as you go through this learning process. So I became interested in the international world, let's say the international vision, when, when I was a child. My father was in, was in the service. Uh, he, he was a medical uh, field medic when he first started in, in his career. He, be, he kind of became a hospital administrator over the years. And because of his work, we moved really every two or three years, both within the United States and abroad. I was born in, in Arkansas. My father was teaching ROTC at the University of Arkansas. We lived in Texas a number of times. We lived, my parents are from Oklahoma originally. Uh, my dad did two tours of duty in Germany, uh, where I really saw what it was like, even as a child to be exposed to another culture, another language, a different way of thinking, even in the small way that a child can perceive that. When we returned the second time from Germany, we, my dad was stationed uh, at Valley Forge Military Hospital. Uh, we lived in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. And then when he retired, we moved to Kansas City. There was something in, you know, first of all, I was used to moving around a lot, you know, maybe too much. You're always the new kid in class. That's not fun. It wasn't fun for me. Some people, that's okay, not for me. I became very shy and retiring and introverted, but I never lost interest for other cultures and other countries and um, history. I love history. So 
I want, I'm really interested in the cultural aspect. But I, when I was at uh, KU, I um, went on a study abroad program that the university was sponsoring in Guadalajara, Mexico. There's a friend of mine from high school that was on that same program. She had gone before. She said, hey, you want to do this? You know, I'm looking for somebody to go with, really, is what she was telling me. And I said, wow, I never thought about that. Uh, sure. We were, I had been studying Spanish since uh, junior high school. And I kind of stopped when I got into university. Then I picked it up again because I was an English major, English literature, and I decided to double major in Spanish language. And so she said, okay, let's go together. So we took the bus from Kansas City to Laredo, Texas. That's a long bus ride. This is a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, we, didn't, we didn't think about flying. What? We were on the bus. We crossed the border. It's a, it's a long drive down to Guadalajara. And right away, you realize you're a different place. This is very different. And we went over the mountains. As I remember, it was very cold that night. We went over the mountains. And we arrived early the next morning. In some little town, I don't know exactly which one it was or where it was, but we got off the bus for a break and we could go in and get a coffee or something. And I'm a, I'm going into my senior year as an undergrad, and I hadn't been out of the States since I was a little boy. But when I stepped off the bus, and I can remember it so clearly today, I thought I had been this place before. I know this place. This place is so familiar. I felt very much at home, very much at home. So I spent the summer in Guadalajara living with the Mexican family. I lived in two, with two different families. It was wonderful. So I think that was the start of my interest. My plan had, was eventually to finish my schooling in Costa Rica and study, uh, sorry, teach English to uh, Costa Rican students. That never happened, but that's kind of how it got started for me looking at the international world. Where did you go from there? So graduating with the degree, having all these international experiences, how did you enter the world of international admissions and recruitment? Well, my dream to go to Latin America wasn't fulfilled right away. But about eight years later, I got an opportunity to go live and work in Uruguay, South America. I went down there. I was going to do some volunteer work with my church. But also there was an opportunity to work at a new startup daily newspaper. And so I, I, I'm not a journalist by any means, but I was interested in the language. And so they kind of took me on as a translator, mostly doing written translations. That led to, eventually I became a simultaneous interpreter. I did a lot of conference work and that led me to conference organizing. Uh, and I did organization for conferences like three people up to 3000 or more, all aspects. And I loved it. And that took me all over South America, all the countries of South America, and even in some cases because of the conferences to Europe, and also a, a one trip to the Soviet Union at that time for a conference. So that was pretty amazing. I'm kind of dating myself here, but uh, it was a while ago. So that was kind of the beginning. So when we were living in Uruguay, we lived there for 20 years. My kids were born there. I have three children. And they were all, their first language was Spanish. I really felt happy for them because I knew one day we'd go back to the States, but that they would have the benefit of having lived in another culture with another experience. And they would take that with them when they went back to, we went back to America. So after 20 years, we eventually, we eventually did that. But while I was in Uruguay, I met the University of Bridgeport. They were there looking for students. And they asked me, would you like to help us? And I said, I was busy. You know, I was a teacher. My wife, my wife and I were both English teachers. We had a small business that we ran. Uh, we, I was doing my conference work and my translation work. I'd be involved in some church work, volunteer service work, that kind of thing also. But I said, sure, you know, let me see what I can do. So I got involved with them. 
And then after 20 years, we decided to come home, basically because we wanted our kids to know their their grandparents, you know. When uh, University of Bridgeport heard that I was returning to the U.S., I, I was going to a conference in New York. Uh, I met uh, one of the deans who was at the university, said, would you like to come up and interview for a job? Because uh, I didn't have a job, you know. <laughs> what I was going to do. We sold everything. We'd had nothing left. You know, we just want to come home. That's how I started. It was like a second or third career for me as an admissions counselor. And of course, my territory was Latin America. And it just took off from there. And from the very moment, I think that I began, I just loved the work. I'm not, I don't know about you, but I'm not a desk person. You know, I've become a desk person. Oh, but you know, I really like to get up from the desk and walk around and talk to the people. And uh, being a recruiter and an admissions person, particularly internationally, you 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 do the the files, you you're doing the paperwork, you're running your communications, you know, but you're also out and you're you're engaging, and I love that. So it was like a, the right balance for me. Uh, working at the University of Bridgeport, I uh, worked my way up. I started from the very bottom. You know, I was happy to do that. That's kind of my philosophy: start at the bottom, learn everything, because if you do become a manager of something later on. You've done the, the people's work. You know what they're going through. You can either sympathize with them or push them, you know, because you know. I was at the University of Bridgeport for 17 years. Uh, the university began to change. And so I moved on. I went to the University of New Haven. I was there for about a year. And then this is just the very beginning of the pandemic, and I got let go. And so I was, oh, my goodness, you know, what am I going to do now? And um, I am of a certain age. And as a result, I'm thinking, maybe, maybe I'll just, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm done, you know, let's kind of ease out, you know, not a lot of glorious ride into the sunset, but just kind of, you know, easing out, you know, disappearing. But there's something tugging at my heart. I thought, well, maybe I'll do a little bit of consulting work. As a result of that, I thought I'd engage a little bit. One of the things that I've been very conscious of, and maybe not conscious in the beginning, but I became conscious later, was building up a professional network, uh, a network of uh, professional contacts all over the world, because my travels took me to 60 countries. And uh, so I saw people from all over the world. I made some good professional trusting relationships, but they became not just business contacts, but also friends, you know. I don't know. I was uh, in this position where I was out of a job and I was started. What I did for three months was I made a little schedule for myself and I contacted three to five people in my network for that period of time. And I got one opportunity to do some small consulting work and I worked on that. And then in the middle of that, I got an, uh, an offer to come work at the seminary, small graduate seminary in New York City, very small school, different kind of work. But I thought, well, this is a good fit for me at this point in my career. I want to keep my big toe in the international world, but I want to learn something else about the world of international education. And the seminary is a very diverse place. It's very small, but it's very diverse. And I was also given the opportunity to be an instructor and field of management. Yeah, I love that story. And you know what I love? Going back to what you said at the beginning, you were on that Greyhound bus from Kansas to Laredo, Texas, and then down through Mexico. And you stop somewhere in some little town in Mexico, get out of the bus, but it seemed familiar to you. It, I love that because I think that all of us who have traveled in this world, even though we, have, we go to a place we know we have never been to in our lives, there is that feeling of familiarity and um, that I've been here before. I know this place. And, and I think it's really, it's just simply the feeling of being somewhere new. 
but you it, it's replicated every time you go somewhere new. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that feeling and I guess how it probably then encouraged you to keep on going with your international explorations and yeah, that's that's an interesting topic. Now, why do this work? Uh, because there's all kinds of people in this field with different perspectives and different motivations, frankly. I guess what I learned living in Uruguay, it took me about, you know, so Uruguay, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a it's a very European culture. If you look at the people that you could think you you could the Spanish people who would come visit Uruguay say, Oh, this is just like Spain. And I didn't know how true that was till I went to a conference in Seville a few years ago and it wow. This is really very, very, not the same, but very, very similar. The Uruguayan people are primarily Spanish descent and Italian descent. Maybe 80% Spanish descent, 18% Italian, and then a mix of other European uh, origins. So on the surface, you kind of look the same. But it took me about three years to learn that we're not the same. Oh my gosh, we're really not. And I didn't know that for three years. And I was going around being an American, you know, with my American sense of humor, my American gestures and whatnot. And I was offending people. I was hurting people's feelings. You know, I mean, not, not like all the time, but once in a while. And I never liked to do that. I realized that I was not transmitting my real heart towards them. So what I began to learn over the years was that there's more than one way to look at something. You can take a given situation, you have your approach, and just as individual people, we tend to think that the way I look at things is the right way, or it's the only way, or something like that. I don't know anything else. So if I look at it this way, you must look at it this way also, but it's not the case. And so I began to take a step back and try to listen more and to appreciate more and learn more. Of course, I'm trying to learn anyway, but I took another look at it. And I realized you can look at once today, I can say I look at one situation and one person can look at it from this way, from another culture this way, from another culture this way. And all of them are right, you know, because if particularly if you work together, combining those ideas, you can actually arrive at a better solution, perhaps, you know. So I learned there are cultural differences and it fascinated me. And I knew in the process I was changing that hopefully I was becoming a bigger person with a bigger mind more appreciative because I'm all about let's dialogue, let's talk, let's understand each other and resolve things in that way, you know, for a better world. Honestly, I'm kind of idealistic that way. So that is what has led me to continue to want to investigate uh, other cultures also. So when the challenge came of, you know, suddenly I'm an international admissions counselor and I need to travel, it wasn't a frightening thing. Although I went to Latin America, first and foremost, I went to Latin America in the beginning, but then Somebody, one day uh, I was, I had moved out of uh, international admissions into graduate domestic where I was director and the director of international admissions hurt his ankle and uh, he couldn't travel. So they, uh, they came to me and said, Steve, would you like to go? And he was going to India. I had never even thought I would ever go to India because, you know, my generation, India was very far away. You know, just like Uruguay was, I'd seen Uruguay in a book, but that's it. And it was all very kind of exotic and uh, someplace I would never go. You know, now the world is so different. You just get on my kids. They just go, they go all over the place, you know, different generation. I said, sure, I'd love to go. I'd love to go. But honestly, I was scared to death. I was scared to go there, you know, not for any other reason. It could have been any other country, but still when I didn't know, I was a little hesitant, you know, maybe more than hesitant, but I was 
very brave. Okay, let's go. Yes, I'll, I'll go, you know. So uh, I went there. Girish, I, I've been to India probably 35 times now. And it's my favorite country to go to. No, it absolutely. It's the hardest country in the world to go to for me. But at the same time, it's the place that if I had to pick a place I want to go to, that would be the place I would, I would pick. They're totally different from the Western world. We have thinking, we have going about things. But I tried to really, they want to come to the U.S. to study, how can I help? And I think you can help them, not just by talking, okay, we have all these programs and these are our mission requirements, but what are your goals? What are your ambitions? How can we meet those goals? So I learned to try to, you know, and it's like I'm just barely scratching the surface even after all these years, but it's so satisfying, I think, to do that. Steve, so many things I want to unpeel there. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you love traveling to India. It's a, in I many do. cases, a life-changing experience, isn't it? Yeah. You absolutely. know, let's talk about that. There's so many things you talked about, but let's go back to that, the whole idea of destiny bending. That's what we like to focus on in this podcast. Sounds like you've had many experiences along the way where your destiny was bent. And maybe along the way with your history and with your record of working in the field, you've changed a lot of people's lives. Could you reflect on both of those? Talk a little bit more about specifically, when was it? Was it when you landed in that town in Mexico or when you're in Uruguay, when you landed in India? When did your life change? Well, I guess there's a lot of points of change, right? Otherwise, our life would be pretty dull, right? But I guess what pops into my mind when you ask that question is, my Spanish language course at Kansas State University, and I, I think I must have been a freshman or a sophomore, because I started studying Spanish when I was in junior high, and then I stopped thinking I would stop when I graduated from high school. You know, I don't want to study that anymore. You know, I want to do something. So then I, but I didn't know what I was going to major when I went to university, and I went took a freshman comp class, and I thought, this is what I want to do right away. I knew that. I kind of stuck with that from that point on. But to get a, a, a bachelor's of arts in English, you need to have a foreign language. So I thought, ah, I'm going to study Spanish again. And so, okay, so I got back into it. And I had a professor from Venezuela, from Caracas, amazing guy, totally invested in his students, trying to help us to speak Spanish and pronounce things well. And then he would talk about Caracas. Of course, I'd never been there. And he would talk about bringing, having his students visit there and then him picking them up at the airport and having to drive, you know, the passenger sitting wild-eyed in the seat as he navigated the Car Caracas traffic, you know, thinking that he's risking his life. But he, something said, oh my gosh, this is something, I, don't, I can't even put it into words, but I thought, I'm going to study Spanish, I'm going to do a double major Spanish, and then I began to think about going there. So that was the one bend in my destiny, I think, when I was at undergraduate school. But then as a professional in the higher ed and field of admissions and recruitment, I think I've touched a lot of students' lives. I, I try to keep in touch with, with my students as much as I can. I mean, I have two Facebook accounts, supposed to be one personal and one professional, but they kind of get blurred a little bit here and there, you know. And for years, I have made it a habit, and it's just a joy to do it, Every morning I go on, you know how the Facebook alert you to people's birthdays. I wish people a happy birthday every single morning for years. And that keeps me in touch with these students. I had a student from China write me yesterday on LinkedIn. And uh, actually, she confused me with another Stephen, but that's okay. 
I knew she had confused me, but we, we did know each other. But she was talking about a different fellow. But that kind of thing happens all the time. You know, they pop up. And uh, Two instances, both Indian students come to mind about bending the destiny of, uh, you know, the people that you're working, that you're approaching. One was a gentleman who came to the University of Bridgeport as an MBA student. He was a little bit older, I think already uh, somewhat accomplished in his career. He's from a small village, maybe even a hamlet in northern India in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. You know, orientation students arrive and he went through the process and everything. And I remember him even from then because he looks very distinguished. He looks a little bit older, kind of polished. I could tell he was looking at me, but we were so busy. Uh, we finished orientation. A couple of days later, he came back to the office and asked for me. He said, oh, uh, so I came out and he said, Mr. Boyd, you know, and so that was like, he thinks I'm really old. He's calling me Mr. Boyd, you know, so, but actually he was being very respectful. And uh, he said, I just want to thank you so much for what you've done for me. You've changed my life. And honestly, I don't remember meeting him. I really don't remember meeting him. You know, I hate to confess that, but it's true. You know, and I told him that I said, I don't know if I really remember. He said, no, but you came and I shook your hand and you talked to me about, you know, something that affected him. And I'm here. This fellow went on to become an incredibly successful entrepreneur in the U.S. He's still in the U.S. He's really an entrepreneur. Uh, very, very bright, but always extremely grateful. Always extremely grateful. He went to UCLA. The UCLA, I think it was UCLA in Southern California, would have an annual entrepreneur competition. He would go there, like a 24-hour thing. He won. He won the thing, you know. Really a brilliant guy. He's doing very, very well now. The other um, pops into my mind is on a different level. It's not student recruitment itself, because I did. this was a student who came to our universities where I was working. He was one that I met at an APSA conference. I was giving a presentation uh, with uh, some folks from English, some English language institutes um, to talk about student recruitment, I think, for whatnot. But he was in the audience. He was going to a university in Boston. And a lot of the people I could tell were very new to international student recruitment, and particularly to the whole thing of India. So I said, you really, really need to be able to understand your students. I said, well, so when your Indian students talk to you, do you understand what they're saying? Do you know what they're saying to you? You know, because we speak American English, right? Quote, unquote. And the Indian people have obviously inherited the English language from the British. And even Americans talk to British, we don't understand each other. What was that you spoke about? Hold on, what was that, you know? And so I, I had that experience when I first started talking to Indian students who were on campus. And I didn't always catch what they were saying. And I didn't, I wasn't sure that they understood what I was asking of them. They would assent, but I wasn't always really sure that I was communicating. So I used a couple of examples. And these are not, my, a couple of them are mine, but most of them are from a, a gentleman. I don't know if you know, a gentleman named Danny Beatty, uh, who's the director of international, he was director of international education and development in Selkirk College in Canada. He was relatively new to the field, but I listened to one of his presentations at some conference. And I realized this guy gets it. He really, really gets it. So I went up to him. I said, can, can you, can I write down what you just said? So I used it in this lecture or this presentation. And so let me just tell you, kind of read it here, what I said. If you have a student, you know, speaking to the audience, that comes up to you and he says, I'm a plus two non-medical fresher with three cleared backlogs, but I have one doubt. 
do you have a stay back option and PG options? And so I said, how many of you understood what I just said? And uh, very few people raised their hand. Yeah. So that's my point. We don't, we, sometimes you just brush it off. I don't know what you said. I mean, I'm not going to bother to find out, but if you, if you take the time to investigate, to ask questions, to learn, you know, when I go to a country, I like to go to the store. I love history. So that's maybe just me, but I love to go to the historical sites. I love to go to the temples. I love to go to the museums. I love to go to any kind of historical place that it tells me something about the culture. And I think the more we do that, the more we dig deeper, the more we really communicate and understand each other. It is about academic success. It is about career, but it's more about what we do. Those are tools that we use to, I think, contribute to you know a betterment of some kind. So we talked about this is supposed to be destiny vendors. Well, Anyway, in, in the, that particular uh, lecture, that young Indian gentleman was sitting there, just the biggest smile on his face when I was giving this quote, you know. And so after the talk was over, he came up to me and he said, sir, can, can I just shake your hand? You really understand Indian student, you know. So, and he says, you know, um, I'm getting ready to graduate university. He's an IT person. It's extremely bright fellow. Would you be my mentor? I said, well, nobody ever asked. I'm thinking nobody ever asked me to be their mentor. What do I do? You know, I said, well, what do you, what would, what are you looking for? So, well, you know, I like to, you know, I'm getting my, my company started and I, I just like to be able to call you up once a month and just talk. So we did that for a couple of three years. And actually, he's so successful now that he doesn't need me anymore. He's sold products to Google and to Turnitin and all these big companies. And But he did call me up just like last month, and we chatted for quite a while. So I think I've helped him on a different level, right? And that's just a couple of examples. Of I think it's interesting that you say that because it's kind of a recurring theme. A number of our guests on this podcast have when we ask this question about, you know, whose destiny have you bent, if you can think about that, a number of guests have responded with, well, there are so many along the way. And I think that that's the same with all of us, no matter who we are, or what field we're working in. In our lives, we touch people every day in so many different ways. And it's just one little interaction can bend somebody's destiny for the good or for the bad, for the positive or for the negative. We don't know because the repercussions of that maybe show up days, months, years later. But I think that something I'm learning from this doing this podcast is, is just that, is to be so conscious every single day of those interactions that you're having with, with everybody, because you are possibly changing somebody, possibly, you know, bending somebody's destinies. And I think for us as humans, it should be so important that we keep that in mind and how we treat people and how we interact with people and how we conduct ourselves in, in any situation, whether it's professional and certainly within international education and working with students, but even on a personal level and in you know, going to the grocery store or whatever it is that we're yeah. doing. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't have a question for you there, Stephen. It was just an observation. Steve, you know, I, you're so experienced in the international recruitment world. Uh, we could probably do a separate podcast just on recruitment and recruitment strategies and success stories and whatnot. But kind of keeping in line with what we're chatting about today, in your experience briefly, maybe can you talk a little bit about what's changed 
in the industry? I mean, a lot has changed, but what mm. jumps out at you, uh, especially as it relates to student recruitment with everything that's happening in the world, with all the competition that the U.S. universities are facing now? Yeah, it is a different world. I mean, I mean even in the, I began my work at, at UB in 2002, January 2002. So that was one world. Around the mid 2000s, it changed. And then moving on to the more recent years, there's other factors in play that are changing all the time. But what you hit on it is becoming more and more competitive. Hmm. There's so much to talk about. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but students also have more information. Students are more aware. But they're, what they are aware of is a limited set of data. So I, one of the things I always like to do is when I go to a new place and meet a new group of students, okay, can you name any U.S. institutions? They always name the five, same five, and they tend to throw in Oxford and Cambridge in there in those five, you know, because those are the ones that are known, right? So the hard part is to, I mean, as an American, you know, I went to Kansas State University, went to the University of Kansas. I didn't go there because of the ranking. So one of the hard things, particularly in schools that I worked in, which were private, regional, uh, mid-sized schools, is to distinguish yourself amongst the other selection, right? So the truth is, a student that I'm trying to recruit, he doesn't come to me or go down to school. But he's going to get a good education. Probably his career outcomes will also be very good. His experience may be different. We can offer something a little bit different. Of course we can do that. So how do I communicate to the student? I think it's really about building relationships. You need to have the right set of programs. Of course, you need to be able to, you need to, be able to check a few boxes in his or her mind before they'll even really look at you very long. But if you can check those boxes, you're not the only one that's going to check those boxes. It's also going to be others. And so why would they come to my school instead of going to another school? So it's about building relationship, building trust. You really want the student to find that, that, that your school that you represent is the right school that they feel is the right school for them. So it's like we've had students, if you look at the domestic students that come on campus and they're touring several nowadays, touring several campuses with their, with their parents, they come on and they'll just say, why did you pick our school? I don't know. I just walked on the campus. It was just felt right, you know? So there's something beyond just the academic criteria or the the uh, career outcomes. It's something that's more that's deeper. It's where you feel comfortable, where you can also succeed. Because you might be qualified academically to get into a certain a school of certain standing, but maybe or that's well known, but maybe that you want to do it, do as well there as you would do it at other schools. So I think the whole concept of right fit is is overly used, and I think it begins to lose meaning. But there is a certain essence which is important. So students have an opportunity to get more information, but they don't have all the information. So uh, if there's something that's changed, students are more sophisticated. Also, students' attention span is much shorter, you know, not just uh, abroad, but all over the world. How can we capture them? So I guess coming out of the pandemic, I think as recruiters uh, and administrators, we have learned on this side of the table better how to use those tools, use them more effectively. And I think that's going to help us too. So there's a million things to talk about there, Eurasia. So I don't want to get off away from destiny benders, but that could be like a long thing. But No, I agree. We could, like I said, do a whole another podcast or a series of podcasts just on international recruitment, maybe some other day. Is it now time for our quick fire questions? Stephen, you must be familiar with these. Having listened to our podcast, are you ready? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. <laughs> so I will go first. You spent a long time in Uruguay, as we have learned. What was or what is your favorite food 
from that particular country or perhaps from South America because you spent so much time there? Uruguay is known for its beef, uh, great beef, all parts of the cow. Uh, but I think the most favorite uh, typical cut would be the ribs, the beef ribs, short ribs uh, on the grill, you know, cooked out in the open. And the very, very best, though, is cooked with the skin of the cow on the on the whole side of the beef. So you you, you let it cook for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours slowly over these uh, wood, wood coals. It just melts in your mouth. That sounds amazing. I'm not a vegetarian, obviously. <laughs> I am a vegetarian, but that does I'm sound. sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, recently, recently converted to a vegetarian. <laughs> okay. um, Steve, you said you're a history buff. You love history everywhere you travel and whatnot. What is a book that you're reading that's maybe a historical book that you're reading right now that, that you would love to recommend to our listeners? I'm blanking on books. I'm reading like four books right now. One of the books I'm reading, I'm in a, I'm in a class at the seminary, so I, that doesn't count because so I have to read that book, and that's kind of a history book. But I guess along the terms of history, when I travel, I love to visit historical sites, and one of the most, the most impactful places that was unusual to visit for me was uh, Leptis Magna, Libya. This sits between uh, Tripoli and Benghazi, maybe about two hours out of Tripoli towards the east on the coast, on the northern coast of Libya, uh, which sits on the Mediterranean. I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in a uh, government-sponsored college fair or tour in Tripoli and Benghazi about three months before uh, the revolution took place. Wow! It was the first. Uh, it was the first uh, gathering of that kind in like forty years, and it was so interesting to go there, be in that environment, uh, and at the fair. It was kind of a first time thing. We didn't know how it was going to go. You know, we uh, we were there. I'm, I'm thinking a couple of things. We were there, and at the fair, suddenly appeared all these mostly gentlemen, maybe in their fifties, who had studied in the U.S generation uh, decades earlier and they just wanted to talk to us they just wanted to they didn't know us they didn't even know the schools necessarily that they were there but they just wanted to talk to us and share with their great memories of be, having studied in the u.s it really had an impact on their lives so we took a day trip as a group out towards leptis magna leptis magna is a roman settlement mm -hmm. that i don't know the date but it was um uh, I think very, very early on, because there was inscribed in Latin on one of the walls there, Hannibal's name. So it's been, I guess, oh, a wow. long time there. And I had just come from Turkey, where I visited Ephesus, uh, mm. the ancient city of Ephesus. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how contemporaneous they were to one another, but I just love going to Leptis Magna. And it's a it's a incredibly extensive ruin site. Huge. And totally undeveloped. I mean, there's no tourism there. Yeah. Uh, but that was very impactful for me. And I guess uh, the other area in uh, in the Middle East that I was uh, really grateful to be able to have gone was to Iraq. Mm. Um, I was able to go to Iraq three times. The first time, this is, of course, after the uh, overthrow of Saddam Hussein, naturally. Uh, the American troops were still in control of the checkpoints, and we were in the green zone. That's 
my reflection on history. Sorry, I didn't come up with a book. <laughs> no, no okay. but still, that was fascinating. Learning about that place in Libya that I want to, I'm going to go and Google it now. Speaking of travel, though, and you said you've been to over 60 countries with your with your work and probably, you know, in your personal life as well. What is one place, and thinking of history in historical sites as well, what is one place you haven't yet been that is, you know, on the list that you really want to, a chance to get to maybe in the next couple of years? Well, I had a couple of near misses and I would like to be able to go back and go to those places that I didn't go to. So I was mm-hmm. in, uh, I love Jordan. I love Jordan very much. And uh, I was in, uh, usually you go to Amman, you know, but we went down to Ma'an, which is in the south, uh, where we had a, a relationship with the university there. Ma'an is a city is very close to Petra. Mm. It's about 20 minutes away. And we didn't go. It was too late in the day, you know, and oh, no. get back. And, and I've never gone back. That was years ago. So I kind of regret. We could have just swung over there. It was getting dark. So maybe they didn't feel it was wise, but so that's one place. Another place is Machu Picchu. I was in Cusco, you know, in Peru. Uh, we had come from La Paz, Bolivia, where I was deathly ill because of altitude sickness. It's not pleasant for me. I'm not good at that. And I still was feeling pretty miserable in Cusco, even though it was a little bit lower. So that I love Peru. Peru is very fascinating. The culture, the people, the ruins, the history there. I love that. And we were very close. We have to take a train to get there. Uh, from Cusco, but I didn't go. So I like to go back. But I guess those are two places that come to mind. Fabulous. Well, final question, Steve. How did you celebrate the national championship on Monday last week? Oh, you had to get oh. a basketball question in. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, we're still like Jayhawks, so we have to. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a, I am a Kansas fan. I'm a Jayhawk fan. Uh, it was delightful for me to watch them play and, of course, win. Unfortunately, in my family, I'm kind of the only sports fan in my immediate family. So my brother, who's in Kansas City, we're always on the telephone texting each other. Wow, did you see that? Look at that. Oh, my goodness. Same thing for the Chiefs game. We do the Chiefs games all the time. Not so much with the Royals because, you know, there's so many games. You know, we can't really do it that way. That was quite a game. You wish I could see your smile. You can see mine. So, uh, yeah. And I've got my my Jayhawk gear on. And, you yeah, know, go Jayhawks. <laughs> Rock shot, baby. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, next time you want to during the Chiefs game or a Jayhawks game, want to text somebody else, please do. That's exactly okay. what I do. I'm on the phone with a bunch of friends. <laughs> but anyway, well, Steve, it was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm sure we could have chatted a lot more, but I want to be cognizant of time. But I really appreciate it. As a fellow Jayhawk, it's always great to have somebody like you on the podcast. Thank you for all the wonderful work that you've been doing. And, and you know, Godspeed and good luck to you to do more of it. Thank you so much, Stephen. No, and it's yeah. been really great having you on the podcast as a listener. Thanks for your support for Destiny Benders. But I've just really appreciated hearing your stories. I think, yeah, I mean, the travel that you've done has been very impressive, just really thoughtful in your words ab- about what it is that you've been doing all these years. Well, thank you, Jessica, because, you know, when I heard about the podcast, I was immediately interested because uh, higher ed can easily become all about the numbers and bottom line. And of course, that is unavoidable. It's necessary or you can't function. You have to be cognizant of it, to be good at that, to be successful on that level. But it's just not about the numbers. There's a human element. I think that when we're called, any kind of calling you feel, I feel this is a calling. You know, I didn't, I kind of stumbled into the world of international admissions and recruitment, but I found a place where I feel like that I can contribute. The opportunity to come and speak here about these things, which are near and dear to my heart, truly near and dear to my heart, 
it's not an opportunity that you, you don't find a platform to be able to share this kind of sentiment or these kind of ideas, which I think, although it may go unspoken, is something that kind of binds everyone together, mm-hmm. you know? So I really congratulate you on the podcast. It's a, a very, uh, I think it's going to do great things, you know, going forward. So just keep up the good work. Yeah. Thank you so much for letting me come on and share. You've been listening to episode 15 of Destiny Vendors. In the next episode, we speak with Sarah Rimini, Head of International Student Recruitment Europe at Inspired Education Group.